and thank you. Mumkin for Mustakabel, Radiant Kalama Arabia, Walakim Meshidaba. I said to her, maybe in the future I would speak in Arabic, but not today. Um, thank you, Joy. And the reason that we wanted that to be read in Arabic today was to not only celebrate the nations that are among us, there are several in this room that could understand that this morning, but also just for those of you that may not know my family and um, our history, but uh, my wife and I were um, workers in the Muslim world and both of us speak Arabic, although not that version of Arabic, ours is a little bit different. I've had to try to change my Arabic a little bit, but without much success. So we praise God that the gospel has gone to many nations. And we praise God that in the Arab world, they have the scriptures in their language. That is a praise, and that's awesome. So thank you for that. Uh, when we did live in North Africa, there was a period of time where I was able to sit among the men in a cafe and watch the World Cup. And that was a pretty awesome thing because as many of you know that have traveled overseas, soccer as we call it, or football as it's known around the rest of the world, is a favored pastime, especially when it comes to the World Cup. And so uh, it was one of my favorite things to do was to sit among the men during that period of time and watch that. I want to tell you a couple of things just as we're transitioning here. One thing, if you would like to learn to speak Arabic, if you have Arab neighbors and friends, Joy is actually teaching an Arabic class. So you could take advantage of that. If you like the World Cup and would like to work among the nations here in the Triangle watching World Cup and ministering, then in June we're going to have the opportunity through our international student ministries to sit down at World Cup games and work along or sit among and make friends with international students that are here visiting. So good opportunities to get connected to reaching the nations and engaging them. So that's coming. Watch for that. Today we're going to be continuing our time in Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at chapter 8. Now, I mentioned soccer or football. Imagine if you didn't know what soccer was. But instead, the only experience you ever had with soccer was foosball. And you are a foosball pro. Now, my wife stands in that category. She is a foosball pro extraordinaire, all right? She will blow your socks off in just a matter of minutes, and it's over. Well, imagine that's all you know. Little plastic or wooden figures kicking around this ball as you twist them. But then, I transport you to, let's say, Madrid. And you sit in that stadium, and you watch a real match. 
that's when the lights come on. Oh, <laughs> that's what I've been doing all this time. That's what I've been trying to accomplish as I play foosball. It's actually a soccer match, right? You see, foosball is a copy of soccer. It's not soccer. If you believe it is, you're wrong, okay? It's a copy of something real. It was designed for soccer lovers to take the game into their homes at a competitive level, especially for Leslie, my wife. It's extremely competitive. It's a contact sport for her. <laughs> Hebrews is going to show us today that what we are seeing in the Old Testament tabernacle, temple, sacrificial worship system, and the law is ultimately a copy. It's a shadow. It's not the real thing. So turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Now in Hebrews chapter 8, there's a huge section that quotes Jeremiah 31. And that's what Joy read to us this morning, was the Jeremiah passage. And she read it from the Old Testament, <clears throat> not from this section. But in this section, the book of Hebrews quotes the Jeremiah passage. But here's what it says. Now the point of what we are saying is this. Now, this is an important point to look at because there's been a discussion up to this point in Hebrews about this priest named Melchizedek. Now if you want to hear more on that, I want to reference you to our podcast because there's a sermon on Melchizedek that you could go back and listen to and capture all of that information. But that whole passage talking about Melchizedek, talking about a priest, talking about someone who was going to come to fulfill a priestly role, we now have arrived at chapter 8 seeing that. So it says that, that it says this in verse 1. Now the point... And what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. Don't miss that. I actually like put a whole big rectangle box around that in my Bible. We have a high priest. We have such a one as this. And his name is Jesus. So today, what I want to draw attention to is just a handful of things that point us to the superior high priest whose name is Jesus. And here's the first point. We have such a high priest. It is Jesus that we're exalting and looking to here in this passage. And this is the climax of the crescendo of this book. Everything has been building up to this. We are at the peak here. And we're standing on this mountaintop saying, He's here! We have this high priest! Woo! Right? Now I used to have a sticker on the back of my car that said, Yay Rafting. Because there was this rafting guide 
at the National Whitewater Center in Charlotte who was crazy. This guy was insane. And if any of you have ever been rafting there and you've had this guy as your guide, you know exactly who I'm talking about. He's an older guy, probably in his 40s, and he's the craziest dude you've ever met. And so his, he would say, after his safety thing, he would say, after telling you how you were going to die and drown and how your PFD might save you and that you wear a helmet or else it'll crack your brain open, like all this stuff, then he would say, yay, rafting! And we're all sitting there going, I'm not getting on that guy's boat. Like, that guy's crazy. So it became a famous saying because people would actually try to get on this guy's boat because he would just go crazy. The boat would be spinning through the class three rapid, all this stuff. And all the way down, his boat would be going, yay, rafting, yay, rafting. So it became so popular that they actually started making bumper stickers that say, yay, rafting, National Whitewater Center. And people would know exactly what you're talking about when they saw your bumper sticker. That bumper sticker eventually like, got wiped out in a car wash off of my car. So now I have a new one that says, yay, adventure. All right? So we get to this climax on standing on this mountain, and we're looking out, and we see that we have a high priest, and we're just going to go, yay! <laughs> oh, come on. Some people caught on, and others didn't. So let's try this again, all right? So we get to this mountaintop, Crescendo in this book, we're building up to this great high priest whose name is Jesus. Yeah. Woo! Man, and it's awesome because now we see that we have a superior high priest. We have the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry on display in front of us. And there was a hymn that really captured this. Horatius Bonar wrote these words. He says, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Tis He who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because He loveth me. I live because He lives. And that is our High Priest. That is the one that fills the role of Melchizedek for us. Now, there's another piece here to this. The second point that shows us, reveals the superiority of Christ's high priestly role. And it's also in verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I love rocking chairs. This one especially, it just creaks and moans as you sit in it. It's just awesome. And you can just sit and have peace when you're in a rocking chair. But there, this is sitting here for a reason. Jesus Christ sat down. Now I know you might not really capture the significance of that. But let me tell you why this is so vitally an important little piece right here in Hebrews 8. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So twice 
in Hebrews, this is mentioned. You see, there were no chairs in the tabernacle or in the temple. There weren't chairs in there. It wasn't part of the decor. When the priests were working in the tabernacle and the temple, they were always standing. They were always serving. They were always sacrificing. See, the temple is pointing to a perpetual work being done. There was no time or no space for the priests to sit down. And this is important to note because the symbol that we're supposed to see here is that the work of the temple is unfinished. The sacrifice of the temple is insufficient. The atonement of the temple was a shadow, not a reality. Yet, Jesus Christ's work is finished. The sacrifice of the Son of God was sufficient. The atonement that Jesus accomplished on the cross was real and forever. And so Jesus sat down. Folks, this is an important theological point for our salvation. If Jesus were still standing, then the work would not be finished. But when Jesus died on the cross, His last words were, It is finished. It's accomplished. Our salvation is done. Our sacrifice was made. Our atonement for sin was accomplished there on the cross through Jesus. Jesus sitting down shows that His ministry is superior in every way, but is no longer a shadow and a copy But it's the real thing. And Isaac Watts captures this in poetry. And when he said, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Jesus was our ultimate sacrifice. The third way that Jesus shows His superiority in the priestly ministry is that He serves in the true temple, not the copy. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 2-5 through says this about Jesus. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, He was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Remember that foosball table? It's a shadow and a copy of soccer. The real thing. And see, 
One New Testament scholar says that God actually showed Moses on the mountain a peek into the heavenly sanctuary. Moses saw through the flimsy curtain that separates our space from God's space. And Moses could see the true reality so that he could actually design a copy of it here on earth. And this is what we were seeing. In this passage in Hebrews, there are these references to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, to Moses. Including this tabernacle reference, we're also seeing a glimpse of Moses. So last week, someone asked me, how do you reconcile these differences between the Old and the New Testaments? Many may see that the Old Covenant was not a covenant of grace. I've heard that said before. But you know, the, whole, the Old Covenant was actually a huge gift of grace. Hebrews uh, chapter 8, verse 9 says, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Did you catch that grace in that? God didn't leave us as slaves in Egypt, God doesn't leave us as slaves to our sin. There's a huge grace gift in that. Even the wilderness, even the, the escaping out of Egypt was a copy, a shadow of what the true reality we find in our forgiveness of sins in Christ now. We were slaves in, to our sin, in bondage. Yet Christ set us free. So when we see this, we, we see that Israelites were rescued out of Egypt by God's grace. We are rescued from sin by God's grace. So what was the problem? And why do we need a new covenant now? And here it is. In Hebrews 9, it goes on to say, For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Here's the problem. It's us. We are unfaithful. We are idolatrous people. We are the ones who break the terms of the covenant. The prophets of the Old Testament even use much more colorful language than I'm using to describe that. And so when we see this, we see that the people of God rejected their God. The main problem with the Old Covenant was that it was external. It didn't give the people what they needed to fulfill it. And that was the point of the Old Covenant. It was to show us, again, a shadow or a copy of the real thing. It's to show us it's insufficient. We cannot even keep the law, even on one point. So it didn't give us what we needed, and that's why we need the new covenant. That's why it's better. It works internally. So you get that? The old covenant is an external. It was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant is internal. It's written on a heart of flesh. And this is important for us to see this. So that brings us to the fourth reason, the fourth point in Christ's superiority as a high priest is He gives us a much more excellent covenant. And that covenant does two things. First of all, it transforms us. And second of all, 
it saves us. So we have to discern the copy from the reality. So here's something interesting. The word better, so the, so the New Testament's written originally in Greek, so you can go back to the Koine Greek language and you can capture some things that we don't always see in the English. It's harder to pick up. And plus we have Bible software, it helps a lot. Um, the word better occurs more times in Hebrews than it does in the rest of the New Testament. The word covenant occurs more times in Hebrews than it does in the rest of the New Testament. And in Hebrews, that's my ring. That's not my phone, is it? Okay. In Hebrews, we're seeing the combination of the two. Better covenant, better covenant, better covenant, better covenant, better covenant. Repeated over and over again. More times in this book than any other time in the New Testament. That's giving us a clue. The, the Bible wants us to have these huge lighthouses set out on these island rocky coasts of theology. Warning the ships to come in to harbor because this is the place where you're going to find truth. All right. So you see these spotlights going out when you pick up these things in the scripture. It's important. So here we've got these two words. Now, is this coincidence or is this providence? Right? The word covenant is referring to the declaration that God is making of his unconditional promise to make Abraham and his seed the recipients of certain blessings. I'm going to say that again. It's a mouthful, even for me. All right. The word covenant here is referring to the declaration of God's unconditional promise to make Abraham and his seed the recipients of certain blessings. So that first thing the covenant does is it transforms us. And this is where we move in to Jeremiah's passage here. This writer is quoting this, this portion of Jeremiah. All right. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. In the old covenant, the people received God's law but they didn't have the ability to receive it and then love it. Did you hear that? But in the new covenant, here's what happens. God gives a new provision for our human weakness. This is what's happening in the new covenant. He not only promises the law, but He places the law inside of us. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the new provision that makes this possible. They didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of them pressing the law into them in the same way in the Old Covenant that we now have the Spirit of Jesus Christ who has died in our place for our sins now pressing that into us. And here's the point. This exalts the work of the triune God here. It's putting forth that the Father's will in creation of the covenant, the Son's obedience and fulfillment of that covenant and the Spirit's application and sealing us with the covenant all comes together in one in our hearts. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 is a big 
parallel to this passage when it says this, and we all with unveiled face. Here's another reference to Moses, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Remember, Moses couldn't walk into the presence of God without getting this glow on his face. And then if he walked out, the people would all freak out like, oh man, you're glowing. So he'd wear this veil on his face. He would cover it. All right. So now in 2 Corinthians it's saying, and now we all with an unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's the Spirit at work in us. Then in verse 10 of Hebrews 8, we see this further. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. Now look at the order here. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is important to see that. The law comes first into our minds and then is written onto our hearts. This is an internal work of the Holy Spirit. The Old Covenant, all external, written on stone. Okay? The New Covenant, written on hearts of flesh. Look at this. Right thinking leads to proper love. Truth first, then love. Doctrine, then emotion. We need them all. We need them both. It's a balance. The true doctrines, right theology, is written in our minds and moves to our hearts so that we love it. We love the law of God. And so Spurgeon said this, he says, Light shines through the mind and warms the heart. So the promise of this internal work of God through His Holy Spirit is making the covenant, those two words in Hebrews, a better covenant. A better covenant. Now, the second thing the covenant's doing, it transforms us first of all, but then it saves us. Look at verse 12. And this is awesome. Verse 12. Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I want to tell you, I found like a hornet's nest of, do of doctrine in this one word, merciful. Man, God's going to forgive our iniquities and our wickedness, or our sin. But this Greek word for merciful is used... Okay, let me just kind of like backtrack a little bit. Let's get into the history. All right. Joy read Jeremiah from the Old Testament, okay? That was a Hebrew translation. What you're looking at right now in Hebrews is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay? So at some point in history, Hebrew children no longer spoke Hebrew, so they needed a Greek translation, so the Septuagint was a translation, so the New Testament quotes the Septuagint because it's written in Greek, so all the Greek lines up. But it gives us the ability to see some things into the Old Testament as far as Greek words. And mercy is one of them. This word is actually the word used in the Old Testament to describe the mercy seat. All right, now what is the mercy seat? In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was this box called the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones did not discover this, okay? But it was a real thing. All right, I'm going to use this table. All right, it was, about, it was like this size. It was big. 
You couldn't touch it because you'd die. It happened to a guy once, all right? So you had to put these poles in it and you had to carry it, all right? On top of it were these angels facing each other with their wings extended. And that was called the mercy seat. And that's where they poured the blood. Now here's the cool part of that. What's inside the box? The broken Ten Commandments. When Moses was m mad at the people, he threw a temper tantrum and broke the, covenant, the, the tablets of stone, right? Now I don't know what... Anyway, we won't get into that. So anyway, those are in the box. So here... Inside the box is the broken law. On top of the box is the mercy seat that you pour the blood on. <laughs> so when God looks, he looks through the mercy seat, through the blood of the sacrifice over top of the broken law. You get that? Man, what a, what a shadow and copy of my life. I'm the broken law. But Jesus' blood is poured over me in mercy-seatedness in this passage. God is being merciful to me. That word is mercy seat. He's being mercy-seated on me. The blood of Jesus is poured on me mercifully so that God no longer sees the broken law in me, the unfulfilled covenant. He sees a new covenant in Christ's blood. Atoning, covering, atonement, that word means the, the lid of the box, the atonement, the covering. I'm now covered, I'm now mercy seated, I'm now totally covered in blood. And my old covenant brokenness is not what God sees. Yeah, right? Wow, that was one word. I mean, it's crazy. And it just goes on and on and on because this word just keeps expanding and you start looking at all these things and, you know, here's this priest. He's standing there. Remember the priest would stand there in the Old Testament. He entered the most holy place with this blood sacrifice. Jesus sat down. But this is another interesting thing that I, I just found fascinating. I'm still trying to work this out. That word's only found one other time in the New Testament and it's in Matthew when Peter actually curses Jesus using this word. Jesus says he's going to die, and Peter says, oh, no, you're not. And in the Matthew, in English, it says, God forbid that you would do this. You know, Peter actually cusses at that moment, in a sense, because he says to Jesus, you're not mercy-seated enough. Oh, and what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So there are only two occurrences. This is powerful language here. Jesus is mercy seated enough, Peter. Thanks for drawing that out for us to learn from it, because I have a lot more like Peter. Jesus is enough. So when God looks at this broken covenant, he sees the blood of a debt paid. And Peter is using this word to try to draw Jesus away from it. But there's another alternate use of this word that's also found in Hebrews. And this is pretty awesome. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Flip over there real quick. Look at this. It's here. It's, it's, not, this, it's not the same word, but it's the root of this word used in a different way. And it says this. 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and then it's used a second time, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word is also the word propitiation. We never use this word. We should. This word means the wrath-bearing sacrifice. So not only has, God, has Jesus fulfilled the new covenant in His blood, He has taken away God's wrath towards our sin. So now God can truly look upon our brokenness and see the wrath-bearer instead of us. Jesus' blood covers our broken covenant and the Father sees that blood covering as an atonement for our sins and therefore saves us. Not based on any work that I could do. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. If I could actually accomplish this, Ephesians 2 says, I would boast in it. See? I'm good enough. I did it. I accomplished it. But Jesus is saying, no, you didn't. You can't. It's impossible. There's only one way to be brought near to God. And it's through the blood of Jesus. God remembers our sins no more. And then it says that in verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. This is, uh, it's like Psalm 103, 12. That says, as far as the east is from the west, God separates our sin. How does God forget my sin? It's kind of like this. If I owe Jeff a debt, all right? Jeff, every time he sees me, he's reminding me of this debt. He won't get off my back. So my, my merciful son, Titus, pays Jeff off out of his hard-earned money and gets Jeff off my back. Nice. All right? Now, Jeff no longer... He doesn't bother about my debt anymore. It's, it just, it's over. He's not have to ride my back. He doesn't have to remind me. It's over. He's forgotten it. It's been paid, right? That's how Jesus does it. He pays our debt. He steps in as the merciful son and pays the debt so that we have what Colossians says is our sin record canceled. That's how God forgets, because it's done. Remember, this great gospel rocking chair truth. Jesus sat down. Wow. Isn't that great? That is just amazing. So let's wrap this up in this way. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I believe this. I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but I'm not faithful. I'm not even trustworthy. But the Word of God says that if we trust Jesus... If we walk in Him by the blood of Jesus, then the Spirit in us, remember it's internal. He's writing this on our hearts. He will make us faithful and trustworthy. 
But yet the more important and greater truth is that Jesus was faithful and trustworthy on my behalf. Not only did he die in my place, he also lived in my place. And that's one of the great truths of Christianity that we cannot overlook, is that Jesus not only fulfilled this debt by dying, he also fulfilled the law by living. He lived perfectly in accordance to the law on my behalf. Every step, every thought, every belief, every action of Jesus was obedient to his Father. I'm the opposite. But he did it for me. He did it on my behalf. He even repents for us when he's baptized into a, a baptism of repentance, when John is going to baptize him. It goes even far that far to say, I will repent even for you. Josh, you don't even have what it takes to fully repent of your sin. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to live for you. You should die because of your sin, so I will die for you. But then he rose from the dead. He's seated there in Ephesians. Again, back to chapter 2 of Ephesians. says, we also are seated with him in the heavenly places. That means that the work is finished for me too. I don't have to live under the law of trying to be good and do better. It's done. But then we might say, but what if I love wicked things and I'm, I'm not attracted to holy and good things? It's kind of, I think sometimes we treat Christianity like a daisy. Okay? You remember this? Pluck one off. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. I mean, this is how we oftentimes approach God. I did really great this week. Hey, he loves me. I did horrible this week. He loves me not. Is that the gospel? No, but man, our nursery rhyme Christianity often comes out in horror in these situations. Because we play these games with ourselves because we don't fully grasp the doctrines that are laid out in the scriptures that this is a finished work. It's not, he loves me, he loves me not. It's just always, he loves me. Always, every petal. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. And will I fail? Yeah. Every day. But it's still the declaration, he loves me over my sin. Now, if Jesus were standing like the priests in the Old Testament, that might play in. But Jesus, is, his work is done. It is finished. He's seated. The sacrifice has been made. So this new covenant of Jesus Christ is a great promise. The law is revealed to our minds 
then understanding gives birth to a great love and affection for Christ and His Word when it's written on our hearts. And we are progressively changed to reflect His character over time. And it takes time. Some days I crawl towards Christ. Some days I run and jump and leap for joy. Some days are hard some days are not. Life's circumstances brings shadows and clouds upon our day. But we have the church, we have the community of faith, we have God's Word to stand on as a promise to be able to make it through those hard times. So we're progressively changed. It comes through knowing and reading God's Word, reflecting on Him so that He illuminates our hearts with these truths. And I want to say, I think Philip Hughes, who's a commentator back in the early part of the 20th century, he said this, quote, it's about Jesus. He left heaven as the Son of God. He returned both as Son of God and also by reason of the Incarnation as Son of Man. He left heaven as Lord. He returned both as Lord and also as minister on our behalf in the presence of the Father. He left as King. He returned both as King and also as High Priest and intercessor for those whom He is not ashamed to call His brethren. He left as Sovereign. He returned also as the Savior. I'm going to invite the band to come up here. And they're going to just start playing some music. And I want us to reflect on this a little bit. I tell you, whenever I am... And I, for those of you who may be visiting or new to Waypoint, I'm not the main teaching pastor. I, I fill in. Our lead pastor's out of town right now. So whenever I'm called upon to fill this role, it's typically something, and it always seems to just fall right in line, it's typically something that God's working on my heart. And I needed to hear about the finished work of Christ this week. You know why? Because just because I have the title of pastor doesn't mean I'm like a professional Christian. Doesn't mean I've got life all figured out and settled. I have struggles. I walk the same path as every other single human on this planet. And so... I needed to hear the truths of God's Word, that it's a finished work. I needed that fuel to keep moving forward, carrying on, walking through life in joy and in sorrow, right? And I would bet you need it too. So I just want to give us a moment to reflect on that.
This week, some of you went through highs and some of you went through lows. Some of you went through health struggles. Some of you went through job struggles, marriage struggles. I know. And it seems that in America, we struggle with a lot of things that bring us down. And one of the first things that tends, I, I, don't, I can't figure it out, I can't put my finger on it, I'm not a professional psychologist or anything like that, but it seems like it's super easy when we're bogged down with life that we turn away from faith. When life gets busy, we don't read the Word. We don't pray. When things get tough, we turn to substitutes and copies when the reality is that Christ has been there the whole time. So they're going to play some soft music to give you a moment to pray and just think on these things and thank Jesus for what he's done. And then I'm going to pray here in a second and we're going to spend some time in song worshiping him. So let's spend some time. Jesus, as we reflect on your glory and live in thankfulness for the accomplished work of Christ, we come before you with humble hearts and gratitude. And Lord, forgive us for our unbelief, yet help us as we learn to believe daily, as we learn to pray, as we learn to read your word and find hope and joy and glory in it. And Lord, I know that I personally need you each hour of each day. I need to see and feel your presence. I need to understand the work of Christ more deeply. I need to ponder and be reminded of this good news. And as I turn from idols and my wicked ways, I confess to you that I do dabble in those things and I do need you. So Lord, I pray that as we, your, your bride, your church, we praise you, but we also ask your forgiveness 
And one day, it's going to see you again. And this is all going to be done. This battle and struggle with the world is going to be over. And so, Lord, I pray that we will keep pressing on, persevering in faith, that the truths that we learn through the scriptures would just be loud trumpets drowning out the noise of culture and sin and idols in this world and that we would turn to the living God. Thank you that we get to worship and celebrate this powerful moment together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.